Man, I'm having so much fun. This is a $1.6 trillion industry. I'm talking about the food and beverage space. If you're not having fun, you're in the wrong place. Yes, it's hard work, but my gosh, the companies, the brands, the flavors, the experiences, the missions, it's fantastic. But some of the brands are different, better, and special. They're the ones who are able to really compete and vie for customer loyalty. Look, I know you want to make your brand different, better, and special. I know you yourself want to be different, better, and special. That's my mission. That's why you're here. Join me on this journey as I interview CEOs and founders from all the different companies within the food and beverage industry so we can discover what they're doing, so we can take that information back, digest it, and become better ourselves and to help our companies take on different strategies, pick the right technology, pick the right partners, and of course, you got to have great taste in food. You got to have great taste in beverages, packaged goods. If it doesn't taste good, you're lost. I'm sorry. You're going to lose millions. If you're new here, take the five episode challenge. Go back, pick out some brands and CEOs, some topics. If you love the content, subscribe. You're going to find it on every podcast platform once or twice a week. But I also publish them on LinkedIn because that's where we kind of hang out. So when you see it on LinkedIn, Stop by, make a comment, share it back into your food and beverage network. I would appreciate it. The brands would appreciate it. To all my loyal listeners, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being with me on this journey. Thanks for coming along on this mission for the past two years. If you are considering a strategic job change, message me. Let's have a confidential conversation. If your brand is growing and you need to attract experts, you also need to contact me because I have created a different, better, and special recruiting system. I promise you, no other search firm in America is doing that. Who am I? I'm Tony Moore. I'm an expert food and beverage headhunter, semi-professional podcaster, and I'm here each and every week. Stay tuned for this week's episode. Hey guys, it's Tony from Winning at Work. And if you've been in the industry for a long time, or if you are a new brand and you're just coming into the industry, you're discovering or you already know just how important it is to have the perfect distributor relationship. And look, it's no secret, I've been in the headhunting kind of staffing world for a long time. We don't date ourselves. I'm not going to tell you how long I've done that. But I've been in food and beverage now for about two years little more than two years. And it is by far my favorite industry that I work in. But there's a lot of things that I've been learning as I go. And I want to really unravel some of the mystery behind uh, these distributors. And I am just, I'm thrilled that my friend Richard Byers, the uh, president for Cashwa Distributing, is going to join us today. He's coming into the gauntlet (laughs) from uh you're up in where uh north dakota north dakota so when i hear fargo i obviously i think of the movie is 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 nothing like that i hope so i moved up here pretty much right after the movie was uh was launched if you will um and i realized that no it's nothing like the movie and most of the movie wasn't even filmed in north dakota there's mostly good because Good, because that was a weird, weird movie. If, if you know, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you probably need to watch the movie. But um, OK, good. 
Good, because I know when I tell people, you know, I'm from Georgia, they think of deliverance. It's like, no, this is <laughs> not, that is not it. We don't have dueling banjos out here. So, uh, Richard, pleasure to have you back in. It's good to talk to you. I know um, I've got a lot of questions. You know, I, I'd love to kind of dive in and, and kind of kind of pick your brain around the world of uh, broadline distributing and just distributing in general. But before we kind of get into our main topic, tell us a little bit more about um, Cashwall. Sure. Well, first off, thank you for having me, Tony. Um, so Cashwa or Cashway Distributing. So funny story, but it's actually pronounced Cashwa or Cashway, not Cashwa. It's spelled Cashway. Yes. So have I are so I've already stuck my foot in my mouth. So pretty it's much spelled Cashwa. Um, however, the correct pronunciation of, of the company is Cashway. It's a long story. If you'd like me to get into it, I sure can. Um <laughs> give give us the cliff notes. We've been around about 88 years. We're a family-owned company. Um, we're on the second generation. The third generation is coming into the fold now. So the first generation owner, um, again, 88 years ago, when the first individual was painting the first truck, um, apparently he didn't stencil it out right, and we became Cash Wah instead of Cash Way. Um, and that's the long and the short of that story. Um, and we stuck with it ever since. So for 88 years. Oh, my God. User error yeah, 88, 88 years, years ago. ago. We're talking about 1934. So back then, I'm sure paint was a little bit more of a hot commodity. And you were like, well, we got a truck. Well, we got to stick with here it. Here we go. So um, when I first heard that story, so it, was, it should have been a Y. So yes. they, they should have put a Y. At the, and they literally just went without. That's f- And after 88 years of building a brand, why change it now? <laughs> Oh, that is hysterical. That is hysterical. Talk about making a mistake that is defined a company. But so being defined that way, um, we've had a we've had tremendous success. So we're actually the largest independent broadline distributor in the Great Plains states. We go all the way from the Canadian border down to Oklahoma City and everywhere in between. Uh, we operate three distribution centers in the Midwest, and we also have a produce company and two supply and equipment companies. Um, one we just acquired this year. Um, and we also have a couple of freight and logistics companies. So we're very vertically integrated when it comes to an independent um, and our independent thinking. We're also part of Unipro, which is one of the largest buying groups for food service in the United States. Um, pleasure to be with them. They, they do a great job with private branding and really have a lot of tools for our customer base and customers around the entire country. So that's a little bit about Cashway in a nutshell. I saw that. Yeah, you you've got quite a uh, several affiliates and roughly what twenty thousand SKUs. So that's kind of mind boggling to me, and that's kind of what I really wanted to kind of dive in with you first. Sure. Um, because oh, look, I I know you guys are focused on. You've got what four different channels, roughly restaurants, healthcare, what education, and C store. Yeah, they would be yeah. our four main ones, correct? And then hospitality okay. um, goes hand in hand with the restaurants. The I think. What hits me first is like, how do you even decide what products or brands you want to bring in in the first place? That's a great question. So historically, and I'm going to, the reason I say historically is I'll bring us back up to where supply chain's at today, um, because what we did in the past is not what we've done most recently in the last two years. Historically, we would bring in, we would partner with other vendors um, or manufacturers. So let's just use some of the big names. So a Tyson, a Hormel, um, some regionals like a Cloverdale Meats um, and some of those type. We would, because of proximity and distance, and we like to keep things local. 
Um, so that's where I bring in at Cloverdale, right? So Hormel's also in Minnesota, but they're a national brand. They're huge. Um, and so is Tyson and so on and so forth. But we decide based upon the product offerings that those vendors have available and what is needed in our marketplace for our customer base. And because of our customer base, um, where we're located, there's not a ton of um, fine dining white tablecloth restaurants. There's some, but not like you would see in New York or California or Florida. Um, that said, we don't carry a lot of those higher end unique items. We carry more of your main staple items, such as burgers, fries, um, soft serve, things of that nature that people in the Midwest are going to want to consume. Um, we do bring in unique items um, from time to time, depending on the customer and what the customer needs are, um, and then for their customer base. Um, that said, with the pandemic and the supply chain, things have changed dramatically for us. So our partners are still our partners, so nothing's changed there. However, our partners are struggling um, in some capacity, whether it be in labor, raw materials, um, transportation, um, and they can't get the products to us that they could historically. Um, so with fill rates dropping down by anywhere from 8 to 25%, um, down into that 75% fulfillment range, we've had to start looking outside the box. And what we've done there is not partnered per se, but we brought in additional vendors that we would have would not have probably brought in historically that are just fulfilling those needs at this time. Because quite candidly, whether you're a restaurant, a hospitality or healthcare, you still need food. Um, and we want to we want to fulfill those obligations we have to you. So brands are changing. Um, I'll just be very candid about that. Whereas in the past, we promoted our brands and we're going to continue to do so. But reality is today, um, sometimes it's what you can get versus what you would prefer. Yep. Yeah, I've heard the fulfillment rates really have gone down. We're traditionally a broadliner could really fulfilled 90, 95% of whatever the market needed. And it's dropped, right? In some cases, 75. I've heard in some areas, even 60%. So you're just kind of catch as catch can. Okay. We're going to use these other people to kind of fill in, right? Where we have to. Yeah. Okay. So I want to understand the kind of the economics behind this. So you know what your consumers, your, your customers want. So then you go out and a buy from the brand. I, I want to think about it from a brand perspective. Okay. So you've got a, whatever the brand, a food brand or a beverage brand. So you're buying directly from that brand. I assume it's some, some kind of a wholesale agreement. And then you are assuming the risk, right? Cause you've got to then resell it and get it out of your warehouse and gone. And then of course be repaid for your, for your efforts. That's correct. So our typical turns um, when we're talking about inventory as a whole, um, we're right around that 21 to 22 days of inventory on hand. So depending on what our payment terms are with the manufacturers and vendors, typically we can turn that inventory inside of the three, three weeks. Some of that longer inventory on those 21 days is you know, some of our non-foods, um, disposable goods, chemicals, things of that nature. But most of our perishables themselves are obviously turned inside of seven days at the most. Um, so really <clears throat> we try to keep as minimal capital tied up in inventory as possible while making sure that those turns are taking place each and every day, um, in each temp zone that we, that we, uh, manage, if you will. So we have the freezer, dry and cooler. Got it. Got, got it. And that explains it because 
I was trying to just kind of sort out in my head, you've got 20,000 SKUs, you just must be really so uh, heavily invested in your own inventory. So that makes sense. You know, you've got your your perishables, which you keep on a quick return. You got the the more durable goods that you can keep on shelf longer. And then, of course, you negotiate with your brands, right? So your payment terms are such that hopefully you've already sold it and then you're getting, you know, then you're having to pay for it. So the money kind of passes through and you don't have to invest as much. That That really kind of helps me understand kind of that situation. So walk me through a 30,000 foot view, right? What is the traditional kind of workflow or operation of of Cashwa or just any distributor sure. really? So with most uh, distributors that start out with, um, we procure the products. So our bur- purchasing team and our category managers decide what we're going to buy that we you know, were discussing earlier. Um, with that, that's what comes in the building. Now it's up to our sales team to go out and get those customers to sell those items to. Um, we have about 2,500 customers here in Fargo or in the Fargo distribution area. Um, with that, once we get the applications from them, we begin to procure the products. Things are in the building. We do receiving every day. We usually receive around 1,200 pallets, um, to put it in perspective, and a day, 1,200 pallets a day. So when we get those pallets in, our receiving crew, and, and they're amazing. We have uh, 10 people on that crew, and, and they get it done every single day. And they have So here's the intricacies of distribution in our world. So we have to get all the receiving done before the order selectors come in at 4.30 to begin picking those products to reload those trucks to go out that night. And because of our geography, we have three states that we, we're pretty much centric in out of this distribution hub. And we have eight domiciles. So those shuttles have to go out in a timely manner each night. So after the orders are selected, transmitted, or I'm sorry, after those are transmitted by our associates and in the system, then they're um, extracted and picked by the order selectors, loaded on the shuttles and or local trucks, depending on where the route originates from. Um, And then they're dispersed among the three states that night. Um, And then the route drivers show up, meet the shuttle drivers, they cross stock products where needed. If not, then they just hook up to their trailer and begin their route. And routes go anywhere from 8 to 14 hours a day. So our drivers are working their tails off and they're doing an amazing job. We have some of the best in the business. Um, that said, once that's done, they scan all the products and then the customer pays the invoice, so on and so forth. And we repeat, rinse and repeat for lack of a better term. And um, this is an ongoing process, it's a 24-hour operation six days a week. So there's a lot of room for error. Um, Fortunately, we have such a great group of people that errors are mitigated. You mentioned category management, and I know that's a a big part of the retail world, right? I mean, those category managers, they're they're really diving into consumer trends. They want to know what products are hot. They want to know you know, who's making those products, who can give them the best margins, who can help fill those baskets, you know, certain products bring other products into the basket, so on and so forth. So how do you guys handle uh, category management? So category management in the distribution world is just like retail, actually. So you kind of nailed all the high high points. So you're looking for the best products, you're looking for the best cost of goods, as well as, you know, is there any additional funds available through those vendors? Um and you can't partner with every. You mean like you mean like spiffs, spiffs or yeah, not spiffs? or or incentives. Sure, you don't call them kickbacks. 
<laughs> no, we we don't we'll call them those. Um, Oops. No, we would call them incentives. So like it, incentives. Yeah. So, and there's all incentives. and there's also opportunities too with category management where someone will say, "Listen, I they're already a partner of ours." So so that's what I want to clarify too. If a new vendor account comes to us and says, "We really want to buy one of your slots. We know this product's going to sell." Yada yada yada. You know, elevator speech. Um, but if we've not done business with them in the past and we have nothing to go on and we haven't really seen their product in our marketplace, it's very difficult to buy into, yes, we want to put your product in. We want to tie up a slot. We want to tie up capital. And we want to hope that this is this is legitimate. Um, now, with a current vendor partner, the category managers look at brand new items um, coming into our building. And let's just say we currently buy all our appetizers from you and you got this brand new appetizer. And you're like, you got to bring this in. It'll sell guaranteed. So guaranteed has one meaning in our world, and that is the vendor is going to guarantee it either is going to sell or they're going to take it back. So let's say they say, bring in one pallet. There's 80 on a pallet. Um, we'll guarantee that entire pallet. They also have support out there. So whether it's a manufacturer rep or a broker, a lot of our manufacturers use brokers in our communities, um, and they help our sales associates sell these products. So between those two entities, as well as our sales force, the theory is we can push just about anything out of our building. But if it's a product that's not needed in the market and we do determine that, hey, we sold 30 of these, but the other 50 are never going to go, um, then the manufacturer would normally take those back and or credit us. You mean like cricket powder? Yeah, that's uh, not real popular <laughs> here in the Midwest. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. They keep pushing crickets on us. I've heard. Yeah, no. So there'll be no guarantee. Yeah, you would absolutely require a guarantee for. Frankly, you wouldn't even let it in the building. Um, let's talk about the the brand that you don't know anything about. That to me is fascinating because I've got all these new brands that are starting up. They're innovating. They've got these great ideas. They're doing great things for their their community, and they show up and they're talking to your category managers or your your buyers. Um, walk us through that process. How do you suss out, you know, whether or not you're going to give someone a shot? Okay. So with vendors that are brand new to the market and, you know, we see some of these. So we go to like the National Restaurant Association show in Chicago every year. And we really want to we want to get ahead of the curve on these vendors. But there's a lot we'll, we'll never know about until they come to our front door. So those that do what we want to do with them first is one, establish how long have you been around? What's your business plan? Because if we've never heard of them, chances are they might be very, very new. We need to make sure they meet our insurance requirements first and foremost. Um, and then we take a look at the product. So as long as the, the business or the entity itself is solid, then we're willing to have those next step conversations. So from that, we would say we want you to do a demo for us or, we, you know, category managers, buyers, couple salespeople. We want to see your product and we'll know nine times out of 10, maybe eight times out of 10, if the product will sell in our market. They would come into our test kitchen, which is fully um, equipped with AV, state-of-the-art um, microphones, everything. So we can record it too for those district managers or sales reps who couldn't make it. And if they say, hey, in this geography, we do think we could sell battered crickets. Well, <laughs> All right, batter crickets. It is <laughs> Ch chocolate, chocolate dipped, right. chocolate yeah. dipped. Okay. So um, from that, we vet that out, and then if we determine yes, you have a viable product, it's in the price point that we believe we can sell it. Um, we'll give people a shot. 
Um, and we've done this, um, some successful, some unsuccessful. Um, but at the end of the day, at least we're always giving our, our operators an opportunity to show things to consumers they may not have seen. Now, do they all stick? No. But at the same time, it's our obligation to be that knowledge base for the operators because they're so busy nowadays with labor, trying to find cooks, servers, so on and so forth. They need us. Right. They need that distributor rep to come in and really consult for them, not just take the order. Right. Let them know this is this is our local community. Well, this is your local community. These are the brands. These are the manufacturers that are out there. We've tested. We've tried. We love these. We think it's going to sell in your restaurant or wherever, right? And guess, let's give it a try. So that's that's kind of that relationship you're talking yep. about. And then we would also create point of sale or you'd have that new vendor create the point of sale too. And we would get that in the hands of all of our 30 sales reps. We'd have them running around with it. We would have that. You know, if it was just a manufactured product, not brokered, we would have that manufacturer in our market for a launch. I mean, we would really put all the horses behind it because the last thing we want to do too is overcommit and underdeliver to that vendor because we both have to have skin in the game for this partnership to work. Well, what I what I'm still trying to wrap my head around is when you have so many SKUs, you clearly have, or maybe you don't, more than one option to give a restaurant. So how do <laughs> that's what I'm trying to figure sure. out is you uh you just hit on the pain point of every distributor probably in the world. And I know that's a broad based statement, but um I would guess right now we have 110 different SKUs of French fries. Now why do we have that? Good question, Tony. So <laughs> we have a lot of customers. You took the words out of we my mouth. A lot of customers, Why? Yeah. Right? Well, there's okay. really only three to five big um, French fry manufacturers in the United States who can fulfill, you know, the volumes that we're talking about. Well, shout out to Lamb Weston. Yes, that would be one of them. Correct. So I've got a good friend who works down oh, there. Yeah, so. great people. We do a lot of business with them. Um, we have for a long time. So what happens is, and, and it's not the manufacturer per se, but, you know, if Joe's Barbecue and Susie's, you know, Hamburger Hut each have their own French fry that they are adamant, this is my French fry that I can't run my business without. And you ultimately have all their other business. Well, you don't want to lose you. Joe's or Susie's. So you bring in oh, French fry. that makes fry. sense. That makes right. sense. And then how do we determine it? So. That's the second part of your question. So if you can turn, let's just say, 5 to 10 to 15 cases a week out of that slot, that slot is a decent slot. Um, and if each one of Joe and Susie's places buy 20 cases of French fries a week, it's very difficult to say, we don't want your French fry business, even though you're using 20 cases a week. That That's not fair to our, our operator partners. So so we try, to, right. we try to do the best we possibly can where – I guarantee you there's three or four down there. They're all exactly the same. I mean, exactly the same. I don't know how many exactly we would have down there at this point if we took them all out, laid them all on the table and said, let's go through these things. Right. We might have 25 by the time we're done. But today we're over 100. And so that's the nature of our business, too. If, if you have a great partnership you know, you, you've been together for a while, you and that operator, you're going to do what you can for them and they're going to do what they can for you. So you answered my question yeah. and that's 
What it comes down to is the operator falls in love. Yep. And it's a business relationship. And and they think that the sun rises and sets on this type of French fry or whatever. And you're going to keep it. You're going to keep it going because they're getting the pull through. Now, would you then also look at, okay, they're pulling 20, 25 cases. Maybe we need to start selling more of that French fry and then you can increase your volume and maybe get your pricing down because you're, you are, you know, honing in on fewer SKUs. Sure. We're doing that with a lot of product lines right now. Um, okay. I would say we've been doing that for years. The issue we've, I mean, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I it mean, it's, it's all you know, in volume. Power. Yep, absolutely. Right. But the other issue we're running into even trying to do that today, and I think we'll get back to it here in early 2023, but even today with the shortfalls on the supply chain, it's been very difficult to go. We'd really like to switch you to X, X potato versus Y potato, but then you go to X potato manufacturer and they go, we can't take on any new business right now because we're at capacity. And it's like, okay, well, when do you think that might alleviate? And then you get, you know, an estimated time frame because no one can give you an exact at this point. Um, but that said, then we plan accordingly once we, we have that estimate. Got it. And that makes sense. And I have heard many of these folks are at capacity. So you can't consolidate and get rid of other SKUs. That's why you do have to go with so many just because of the throughput and the inventory issues. Okay. Well, um, just in general, this is kind of a broad question. You can answer it however you want, but what are the general food trends that you're seeing right now kind of in the Midwest? What's What seems to be hot right now? So what we're really seeing is pepperoni seems to be really taken off. People are putting it on breakfast sandwiches. Um, it's getting stuffed in, as you've seen with one of the national um, accounts. They're doing it with pe- uh, meatballs right now. Um, so some of these cured meats that have longer shelf life um, are really getting to be more and more popular, like charcuterie boards is another one where you have yep. um, a lot of cured meats. So I guess shelf life seems to be a trend, buying those items that wouldn't you know spoil in seven days, and then also consolidation of items. So what we're really seeing is because of the shortage of labor and the turnover rate within restaurants right now, trying to train those new employees is is harder than it has been historically and and they retain them so people are taking up let's just say a 50 item menu down to 30 items but they're trying to utilize those same items they're already purchasing to keep their inventory low so i i think we're seeing oh, I see. I see. They're, they're finding new what they're taking traditional whatever items food and they're just mixing and matching yep. and just letting the chefs get real creative that's what we've been seeing and that way they can keep their inventory a little bit lower or at least just keep it to X amount of SKUs rather than having, you know, one item for one dish that you sell two a week of. Now they're, well, if we put this with this, I think consumers will like it and they're trying that out. And we are seeing too, um, when you talk about trends, a lot of LTOs, so limited time offers, uh, the operators are trying to get back to that. So they're consolidating their menu, but at the same time, they're running those limited time offers to, two to maybe four items, whether it's one appetizer, two entrees and a dessert or something of that nature to see what the consumers are really going to bite on. And then if one of those sticks, great, they go onto the menu. If it doesn't, they tried it, they can move on. 
You know, I've seen some distributors that have chefs in house that are coming up with, you know, ways to use products and things like that. And you've got your commercial kitchen in there. Do you guys take on any thing like that to, to, to show the restaurant operators different ways to consolidate that, that menu, or is that pretty much that's on there? Uh, no. So we do. Um, a great question. So we do have that commercial kitchen. We try to get customers up here and it's very difficult. And that's why I brought up the AV part of it because to get people out of their business nowadays, uh, is a little trickier than it was say two years ago, just because of the shortage of labor. Um, we can record different items there. Um, we do sales meetings every quarter in person as well as monthly virtual ones. And during those, we do give suggestions to sales reps. Hey, have you thought of, and it's more broad based. You know, if, if they're using these 25 items, could they utilize them elsewhere? Um, so it's not specific to an individual, but it's giving all 30 of those sales reps that clarity of, I need to be more of a consultant. And here's one of those talking points I can really help my operator with. I love that. You're, you're, you're educating, you're putting more information in front of the sales rep so they really aren't sales reps. They're more of that, that consultant, right? I, I that love is, that. I mean, that's correct. That's, and look, I mean, your background is, is in sales. I mean, that's kind of where you come from, you know, so it makes total sense that you would be running and kind of, in, you know, wanting that from, from your sales reps. Um, well, look, I think this has been just a great, a, a great overview. I mean, I think, um, I think it, you have a very complex business. I think it's a very time constrained business. Plus you've got uh, that uh, the the orchestra <laughs> that goes on out in that warehouse every every day. Are there other major challenges that distributors face that maybe ha that we haven't discussed? I'm kind of curious. Um, right now, I would say it's it's three components, and it's the same thing most people are facing. It's the inflationary market. So historically, where if we managed our inventory to a dollar amount. Um, if we hit X threshold, we would be at capacity. Well, today we're significantly over that threshold and our inventory slots are, are in manageable condition. Um, so we're managing our business different. We're managing it by case and cube rather than by dollars because the inflation's throwing a wrench in how we've historically done some of our inventory management. Then you have labor. So with the shortfall of just getting qualified personnel, we're Unfortunately, working our associates more hours, a uh, little bit harder than they would have in the past. Um, but we're trying to do all we can so we don't cause burnout for our associates because they really are our most important asset. Um, and then the third one is the supply chain. Um, when that supply chain um, starts to right size itself and we can go back to, I don't want to call it business as usual, but managing our business where it's not a forest fire three times a month. <laughs> like we are going to be out of Susie's French fries type thing because they just said they right. can't produce them. Um, those type of hurdles that we didn't necessarily have ongoing. Um, so when those three things come back into alignment, even if inflation can get down that 4% range, that would be huge for everybody, not just obviously food distribution, but getting that right size, getting the labor back to where, the headcount needs to be getting people back to manageable hours and then getting in the products that we, we so desire versus the ones we have to go procure. 
Great overview. This has been very educational. I know it's it's kind of helped uh, shed some light in some areas that I was a little unclear on. And if again, as I said at the top, if you're new to the food and beverage industry, the distribution model is a little confusing. You know, um, direct to consumer is obviously just what that sounds like. This is a whole different kettle of fish, a whole different kettle of crickets, I should that say. Is. That it is. Um, so with that said, I guess, as we kind of wrap up, are, are you guys looking at, uh, bringing on any more, any more brands, you know, for the last half of the year, or are you guys uh, pretty happy with what you have? You're just kind of, as you say, just kind of manage inventory, labor and supply chain here on So it's out. interesting. You just said that, um, today, or I'm sorry, yesterday we got in, um, we, we talk about brands and things of that nature. So there was an item that was competitive in our market. But our manufacturer um, chose no longer to make that item or couldn't couldn't make that item for, for some reason or another. Um, so our category or head of category management, he's been working on getting a replacement for this item for the last, I would say, going through all the loopholes you have to go through to create a product. Um, probably about nine months. The product came in this week and it's actually in nice. a cash way branded this is our first Cashway branded appetizer. We're beyond excited about this. Um, and so our sales team is running around like crazy this week. I just saw an email. We just sold six cases right before I got on the call. Um, well, what is it? So, You're leaving us so hanging. It's, 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 it's not crickets. It's what not is it? crickets. We want something that's actually edible. Um, so <laughs> we chose to go with a ham and cheese ball. So it doesn't sound like it's the coolest item in the world, but... Here's the thing, they're delicious, number one. They're economical for the operator and consumers really enjoy them. And you can, there's a lot of different things you can do with them. You can do them as appetizers. You can do them on top of a burger nowadays. Um, you could do honey or yeah, you can do hot honey with them. You could do some sort of mustard blend. There's a lot of different things you can do with these and they're versatile and they're inexpensive. And so it's something that the market was requiring. We went and sourced it with one of our vendor partners um, and they were able to get it done in nine months and now it's on our shelves ham and cheese balls coming yes. to a restaurant near you are these fried they are they're breaded well and that's why they're that's why they're delicious yep. they're breaded and delicious that <laughs> um address will be forthcoming for samples no um that's great, Richard. That's great. Yeah. And but just so you guys know, that was not planned. That was not planned. Um, well, what's the best way for people to reach out and, and connect with you, Richard? So the best way to reach out to me would probably be via email at richard.byers, B-Y-E-R-S, at C-A-S-H-W-A dot com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, this has been... It's been great. It's been good talking to you again and kind of looking under the hood at how you keep that engine running up there in the Midwest. Richard, thank you so much for being here today on Winning at Work. Tony, thank you very much.